Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today. We're in the middle of a series called Killing Me, and we think it's going to be a blessing to you. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. This morning, would you turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter or Proverbs chapter 31 and Ephesians chapter 5. So if you got a couple of fingers, that works. You can save those in your Bible. If you have a super smart smartphone, you can tab it or whatever you do with it. But we're going to be in Ephesians 5 and Proverbs 31. And I'll give you a warning. It's going to take a little while before we get there. And you're going to wonder if we'll ever get there. So, uh, but we will, I promise. So it's best to have, be prepared and have those looked up in advance. This morning, we are going to cover the last picture that the Bible gives to us that depicts the deepest level of intimacy that humans can have with God. It's the picture of a groom and a bride, a husband and a wife. The truth is, it's a shocking truth. Jesus wants to marry us. That's in the Bible. That Jesus desires to have that kind of relationship with us as individuals, but us collectively. It's it's you you realize it's both. It's you as an individual, it's you plural, it's all of us. The church of Jesus Christ is the bride of Christ. And if you're a follower of Christ, then you're a member of that. So Jesus wants to marry us. And as we've learned in these last several weeks, that there's six word pictures that the Bible gives to us that describe, that help us to wrap our minds around, gives us language to the different stages in our journey with Christ. And we all begin by relating to him as a clay relates to a potter, potter and clay. And we learn that in that phase of our walk with Jesus, we discover that there's a God and it's not me. And that's a really important first step to to come to terms with that, that I'm not God and that he is. But that begins our journey with him. And of course, we don't stay there. He wants more. And so then the next phase of our journey is depicted in the Bible as shepherd and sheep. And this is a really sweet time in our walk with Christ. This is where we begin to learn his voice. Like we begin, it begins to become interactive, where things begin to come alive in our relationship with God. It's really a great time. But of course, just hearing his voice and interacting with him is not enough. I need to not just hear his voice, I need to obey his voice. And not just obey his voice, but I need to come to understand the joy of obeying his voice. Like, Like, his will is the best thing that could ever happen to me. And I learned that as I relate to him as a servant to a master. That's the third word picture. But Jesus doesn't want us just to stay his servants forever. Like, that's not why he saved us. He doesn't need servants. Like, that's not the deal. Jesus changed the whole game in John chapter 15, where Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. Friendship. Wow. So it's in friendship that that our relationship with Jesus begins to become mutual. It it begins like there's a mutual respect, there's a love, there's 
There's an interaction with him as friends that you don't get any place else. And it's really awesome. But here's the thing about friendship. Like, you and I can be friends, but we still have our own lives. You know, friends get together, we have coffee, we hang out, we share things, and so forth. It's, it can be beautiful, but at the end of the day, go to my place, you go to your place, we have separate lives. And Jesus wants that. And so last week, we noticed that Jesus changes the whole thing again when he says he's no longer ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Jesus calls us family. We're welcomed into the family of God that you and I could relate to Jesus as siblings and that he would share his inheritance with us. That's the biggest, one of the big reasons why he does that. He wants to share the inheritance that he has with you and me. Stunning. But this once more. And this morning we come to the final word picture where not only do we share the inheritance, but we actually share the throne And you and I leave an inheritance. Revelation says we reign with him. It, it, it's absolutely stunning. And, and this is why it's so important for us to grow in our relationship with Jesus. Because the, the destiny that he has for you and for me is so grand that if you were to get now, with all of your selfishness at work in your heart and mind, it would ruin us. But this morning, my prayer is that we would begin to just capture this dream that's on the heart of God that he's had since before the beginning of time, that you and I would begin to capture this. And I don't think we're going to fully understand it at all, but my prayer is that it would inspire us to want more. That's my prayer today, that this message is simply like putting salt in the oats, you know? You, you, can't take a, you can't make a horse drink, but you can lead him to water, and you can put salt in the oats. And I, I'm, my, I'm hoping, not calling you a horse at all, but I'm hoping that, like, that this, this message this morning just salts your oats and makes you thirsty for, for the more that Jesus has in store for you. So that's where we're going, okay? You, you with that? Okay. So, it's going to feel like a while that we get there, but um, I feel like it's important to give some backstory to this and to answer this question, why is it important for me to grow in my relationship with Christ? Why does Jesus want to marry me? Why? And that's what we want to answer this morning, okay, as we get started here. And I think it starts here. Don't you wish that there would be a reset button somewhere, like maybe somewhere in Washington or somewhere on the world, there's like this reset. You know, like Staples has that easy button, you know? Wouldn't it be great if there was a reset button like that? And, you know, the world, the crazy train gets so crazy after a while. The world just gets so nutty. There's so much division and hatred and injustice and oppression and all that jazz is going on. Wouldn't it be great if somebody could just run up to it and bam, okay, the human race gets a mulligan. We start over, right? Wouldn't that be awesome to have a reset button? Like, I think that's why we love marriages so much, why we love weddings. Because if you think about it, a wedding communicates a fresh start and a new creation, doesn't it? You take, 
You take this man from this family and you take this woman from that family and you bring them together and they create a whole new family. And hopefully there'll be, you know, kids down the line at some point. So there's another generation and maybe a generation after that. So there's this hope of like new start. And you wonder, wow, what is going to become of this new family? Only time will tell. We hold on, right? I think there's something in that that, that that draws us to it. It's why we like it so much. It's why values are so important in a marriage. If you're married or if you're not married, you need, this is important. You and your spouse need to share the same values. Your values are what are most important to you. And, and if your values are not in alignment together then you're going to be going in opposite directions and it will create conflict in your marriage. You know, a lot of experts say that the number one reason why people get divorced is over money. And I would argue, no, it's not money because money is a reflection of our values. We always spend money on what's important to us. So it's really not a couple fighting over money, it's a couple fighting over values. And, and if they don't come to some kind of agreement on it, it's going to be trouble for them. He stands on his side of the fence saying, this is what's most important. She stands on her side of the fence arguing for what's most important to her. And they fight, fight, fight until one of them acquiesces or they come to some sort of agreement or they divorce. I mean, it's tragic, but that happens a lot. And you say, that's why you and I need to grow in our relationship with Jesus because our values need to come into complete alignment with his values. Why? Because he wants to marry us. And we can't be rowing the boat in different directions. You say, well, wait a second. Why doesn't Jesus um, change his values to match my values? Why do I have to change my values to match his values? Let me ask you this question. Between you and Jesus, which one of you is perfect? Right. See, we all have growing to do, don't we? My, my, I need to align myself with him because he's perfect. But when that happens, friends, oh, there's nothing more powerful than a man or woman who has died to themselves and has abandoned their life completely to Christ and is walking with him in his will. Nothing more powerful than that on the planet. That's where Jesus is us. You see the power of a wedding? So, so Jesus wants to marry us. And you say, well, why? It's the big deal about wedding. Do that, I want to give us a little bit of biblical history, okay? The truth is this concept is woven all throughout the Scriptures. It goes from Genesis to Revelation. And, and here's what I mean. In Genesis, it's the first book of the Bible. And we begin with a new heaven and a new earth. And there's a married couple, Adam and Eve, and she's made from Adam's side. And the two of them are given what's called the cultural mandate to to multiply, to cultivate the world, to grow, to organize, to tame it, if you will. And and from there to spread the goodness of God around the entire globe. Like, Like they're given this mandate together, right? It's exciting. That's how the Bible begins. And then the Bible ends in Revelation with Jesus and the church who is called bride. Oh, and also a new heaven and a new earth. 
And what will they be? We'll tell. They share eternity together, right? But we know that all things are made new. That's what Revelation says. So isn't it amazing that from Genesis, we have a married couple. Revelation, we have a married couple. The Bible begins and it ends with one. And what's also fascinating is this. Eve was made from Adam's side. Remember the story? The church of Jesus was also made from the side of Christ. Remember a couple of weeks ago at Easter, we said that Jesus, as he hung on the cross, his final word in Aramaic was the word kala, and that gets translated as it is finished, but kala also means bride. He yells out, bride. And remember, in that, remember that then the soldiers came, and they the sword, and they pierced Jesus' side, and from his side gushed out water and blood. Water and blood is symbolic of new life, of a birth. So what was born in that moment? The bride. So we have Adam, his bride, made from his side. We have Jesus and his bride made from his side, both in a new, new earth, both with a mandate. It's, it's, a, it's cool, isn't it? That the Bible has that kind of unity to it? Okay, but it gets even cooler. Because we need to ask the question, when you're studying the Bible, one of the questions that you want to ask is, what inspired the writers to write this? Now, I know that the quick church answer is God-inspired Scripture. And that's 100% true. Uh, All Scripture is inspired by God. No, No argument there whatsoever. However, you you understand that these people are real people, just like you and me, slugging it out in real life. Right? Does it make sense? So they're writing for a reason. And they're writing to someone for a reason. They're, They're writing to explain something or show something or teach something, right? They're writing for a reason. And when you when you understand their reason, it helps to understand the scripture and for the whole thing to make more sense. So you ask that question, why Genesis written? Like, what inspired the compilation of the book of Genesis? Well, it's a great question. So Genesis was compiled probably during the Babylonian exile. Now, I know some of you Bible scholars are going, wait a second, I thought Moses wrote Genesis, and he lived like 1,500 or more years before the Babylonian exile. And you're right, Moses did write much of Genesis, absolutely. But what you and I know as the book of Genesis was not actually compiled and put together until the Babylonian exile. So what do you have? You have Jews living in exile, far from their homeland, swimming in a culture of oppression where people hate them, They're living in this just cesspool, if you will. See why the message of a wedding is hopeful to them? Like, oh, there's a new heaven and a new earth and a new start, a new couple beginning. This, okay. Now, what inspired the book of Revelation? What was the context of Revelation? Well, here's Revelation. It's written by a man named John. John is in exile. He's in exile on the island of Patmos, suffering 
for his faith in Christ, being mistreated, living under the oppression of Rome, and he also writes about a wedding and a new heaven, new earth, and a new day. Isn't that something? So both are written by people in exile. Both are written to people in exile. Both are written as an encouragement to these people in exile. Oh, but it gets even better than that. Because these were written also in specific cultures. And there's a countercultural message to the wedding that we need to see that's absolutely stunning, I think. I'm, forgive me if I'm geeking out on you too much, okay? But there really is something so cool in this. So Genesis is written, like I said, this period of exile in Babylon. Babylon is a specific culture. Would you agree? That makes sense, doesn't it? So what's Genesis saying to this culture? Okay, to understand that, let's back up for a second. Would you agree with me that convictions are what shape culture? That, that cultures are the result of convictions. That like the, the current cultural war that you and I are experiencing right now in our own culture is, is actually the war itself is not against the thing that everybody's grumbling about. But the real issue are the convictions that are at the heart of these things that have led to it. And there are convictions in our nation that have led to the current cultural war that we're a part of. And honestly, quite honestly, if the people of God, if we don't start to recognize that and start dealing with this at a conviction level, like it's, it's never going to change. But the convictions that are, are shaping the cultural war that we're in the middle of right now have been in place for decades in our nation. They're not new. One conviction is that there are no values that are superior. All values are equal. So you believe what you want to believe. I believe what I want to believe. What's right to you is what's right to you. What's right to me is what's right to me. You do you. Do me. That's been in place for a long time. And the other conviction that's been at work is we've been trying, we have for, for decades pushed God to the periphery. We, we're attempting to build a secular society, a godless society. And what we're discovering is that when you take God out of society, somebody has to be God. And you've just created a, a fight. The powerful and the rich and the influential and all that, somebody's going to become king of the heap at some point. Because why? Well, you've taken God out of it. We need to put God back in it, amen? All that to say this, convictions shape culture. So the Jews are living in Babylon when Genesis is being compiled. What's the culture? What are the convictions that shaped Babylonian culture? Great question. You were asking it, weren't you? Great question. It's this. The Babylonians also had a creation story, much like we see our Genesis creation story, but the Babylonians had a creation story. They called it the Enuma Elish. And in the Enuma Elish, it went like this, that the god Marduk went into a fight, had a fight, had a battle with the goddess Tiamat, and he defeated Tiamat, and he went, killed her, and then he ripped her body open in half, and from those two halves, the world was created. That's what the Babylonians believed about how the world began. 
So now, is it any wonder then that with a conviction like that at the heart of their society, that they didn't have one of the most violent societies in history? The Babylonians were known for their violence and their cruelty. Do you know they were actually known for literally ripping pregnant women open? Like, that was a thing that they did. It, well, why would they do that? It was rooted in their convictions. Their convictions shaped their culture. And it's in the middle of this culture that these Jews are living, and they're, and, and they're saying, they're communicating to this culture a different way. Hey, there's a different God. We know God. The, the God that we worship He's a loving creator. He's not oppressive like that. He puts men and women in equal partnership together. Not men ripping open women, but like men and women in partnership together. See how the creation story that we have in our Genesis is actually countercultural, speaking into this Babylonian culture. Does that make sense? It's designed to change things. Well, the book of Revelation, what culture was Revelation written in? Well, John, as I said earlier, was living under Roman rule, and the Romans had convictions that shaped their culture as well. The Romans believed that the Caesars came from the gods. The Caesars are gods. This belief actually set up a caste system where you have people who are in and you have everybody else who's out. And if you are in, boy, you, you are living the dream. You, you've got it made in the shade if, you've got it, if you're in in Roman society. But if you're out, you're, you're nothing. You're chattel, used and abused by the elites and so forth. It was one of the most oppressive societies that we've ever seen, unjust and everything. The Romans were a, a mess. In fact, John finds himself now on the island of Patmos, which is a glorified uh, concentration camp, if you will, it's a, it's a re-education camp sent there by the Romans because he had bucked the system one too many times, and they wanted to make sure he knew his place in that society. And John writes Revelation about a new heaven and a new earth and about a new couple that's establishing a new kingdom. Oh, and in this kingdom... The, the, the people who are in, the in crowd of this kingdom, anybody who thirsts, Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come. Who is thirsty? Drink of the water of life, right? Only qualification for being a part of the in crowd in this kingdom that Revelation speaks of is, are you thirsty? Want it? Do you see how the message of a wedding and a marriage and a couple and a new heaven and a new earth and a new direction in the book of Revelation would be a countercultural message to that culture? So why weddings? Why does Jesus want to marry us? Why does Jesus even want this? Friends, new heaven and a new earth, establishing a new culture, communicating a new way. It's a new day where everyone is welcome who is thirsty. Do you want it? You're in. You got it. Do you see how this is a message that is cultural? In fact, I believe with all my heart that this message is the message that our culture needs to hear right now. We are living in a time where we literally use the words, the great reset. 
that's a thing, right? I mean, talk about a reset button. Like, they really are literally trying to reset things. We're living at a time where, where deconstructionism is, is the thing. Let's get rid of the old. Let's, let's turn our backs on the traditions and all these things, and let's do something different, do something new. We're, we're living in that time, are we not? So you think that perhaps you have been given a message that you are intended to carry to this culture, to let them know that there's a better way, that there is a new heaven, there is a new earth, but it begins by being in relationship, right relationship with Jesus, and he will make you a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.21, 5.17. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. All things have become new. The message that our culture is dying to hear. They, they want something new. They want a new heaven and a new earth. You and I, well, it needs to be something more than just what you and I read about in a book. It needs to be something that you and I experience. We've tested. And this is why Jesus insists on you and me growing. This is why we must progress in our walk with him. It's why it's not enough that you just have a, you know, a free ticket to heaven and free fire insurance and you're good to go, and you show up at church and throw a few bucks in the plate once in a while. Like It's why there's more. It's on your life. There's a call on your life to marry Jesus, to share his values, and to communicate to the world that there's a new heaven, a new earth, a new way, a new time. See that? And this message is all through Scripture. Like if we could... Um, well, let me just take us to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, okay? Ephesians chapter 5, see, I told you, finally, we're here. Chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, rather, I'm sorry, 31 and 32. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. It is a profound mystery, isn't it? how a man and a woman would come together and create a whole new family and marriage and all that sort of thing. Like that, that is very mysterious. It's very powerful. Like It's a profound mystery. But Paul's going, you know what? More than that, I'm not just talking about that husband and wife. I'm talking about Jesus and the church. So you want to, take, you want to talk about something crazy. My marriage is meant to be a picture of the love that Jesus has for people. There's a high call on our marriages, if you're married, folks. Your marriage is not just, you know, the romance stuff that people like to talk. It's so much deeper than that. Your marriage has a purpose, has a calling to it. You're meant to display to the rest of the world covenant love looks like. Why? Because that's the kind of love that Jesus has for us, that love. That's what he desires to demonstrate to the world. That's what your marriage is meant to be a picture of. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? Jesus wants to actually have this relationship with people. Why? He's establishing a new heaven and a new earth. We've said that before. This is all throughout Scripture. Like if, if Ephesians 5 was the only spot that you've read this, you could maybe pass it off as a one-off. But the truth is, it's from Genesis, as I shared, to Revelation. 
And then in between, Leviticus 20.20, wedding language. God says, I have set you apart from the nations as my own. Isaiah 54.5, your husband is your maker. Isaiah 62.5, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, God will rejoice over you. That right there is an encouraging verse, is it not? You're feeling, you're feeling down. Take that verse, write it on a 3 by 5 card, remind yourself of it over and over. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, God will rejoice over you. Hosea chapter 2, verse 19, God says to Israel, I will betroth you to me forever. John chapter 4, verse 29, John the Baptist is speaking here. And he's speaking about the church and about Jesus. And he says, the bride, that's the church, belongs to the bridegroom. That's Jesus. Isn't that something? So I spent all that time, you hung with me, laying down that foundation in the message because we need to see why we need to be like Jesus. Need to be like him because he wants to marry us and he does not want to be unequally yoked. Our values need to be in alignment with. It's a stunning thought, but it's true. God rules the universe alone. Alone the king of everything, absolutely. He rules it alone, but he does not run it alone. He wants to share that with us. But to do that, we need to share his values. Otherwise, I'm rowing the canoe this way, and he's rowing it that way. We're going in opposite directions. This is why we need to grow and become more like Jesus. This is why we've been through this whole series called Killing Me. Because we need to see this, that that there's a call in our lives that's bigger than simply free fire insurance and free ticket to heaven. And it's a glorious call. Um, So you say, well, does a person who relates to Jesus as a bride... How do we relate to Jesus as a bride? What does that look like for us, practically speaking? What does it look like? I think that we get a glimpse of it in Proverbs 31. So we're going to read that next. And I know, ladies, as soon as I say Proverbs 31, some of you women start to a little bit nervously because you're like, oh, no, he just mentioned Proverbs 31. And because Proverbs 31 has been used... As a, as, a, as a bludgeon to beat you with over the years, ladies, saying, here's the Proverb 31 woman, and where are you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So, I, listen, I assure you, that's not what we're about to do, okay? So, whew, you can just uh, let that slide and relax a little bit. I want to ask this question. What if Proverbs 31 is not intended to be a description of you, the ideal woman, although perhaps it is? What if it's also meant to be a description of the bride of Christ? It's a description of what we to look like. What we, as his bride, are meant to look like. As I read Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 31, just would you listen to it as though Jesus is speaking this to us? Here's what he says. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wood, wool, and flax and works with eager hands. 
She is like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it and out of her earnings, and she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her task. She sees that her trading is profitable, and her lamp does not go out in night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them, supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. Watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all, he says. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. So what do we look like if we are to live as the bride of Christ? Well, Just look at a few of these things. First, we are of noble character. Isn't that something? But of course, it's not my righteousness. It's not yours that we carry. True? The righteousness of Christ on us. That wife of noble character. Our husband Jesus has full confidence in us. After the first service this morning, I was talking to uh, Zoe. She's one of our young ladies here, and she was saying that, that recently she felt like she heard the Lord asking her this question. Partner with me. Partner with me. And uh, she's been thinking about that for several weeks now, about partnering with Jesus. She's like, of course I do. I serve you, Jesus. I, I mean, she's a missionary with the Navigators on the Yukon campus. I mean, she's, you know, doing great things for God, Right. So you would look at her and say, well, yeah, you must be a partner for sure. And yet she's, so she's been wrestling with this, like, God, why are you asking me to partner with you? I already do serve you, Lord. And he kept saying, I want you to partner with me. And then she heard this message in the first service, and she realized what that meant. The difference between serving God, being God's partner. He's calling you and me to be his partners. us to, to share the kingdom with him, to share the family business with him, if you will. He's calling us to share the, the mandate with him, right? Partner with him. And he has full confidence in us. Uh, we're diligent in our work. You see that? We build up the family. We expand the, the, the kingdom, the business. We, we bring good, not harm, it says. We open our heart to the poor and bring justice to the city. We are confident and secure, clothed with strength and dignity. Isn't that something? Our husband Jesus is respected at the city gate because of the way that we live, because of the way that we represent him. 
expected. And then in turn, Jesus praises us. Well done. Be a greater honor than to partner with Jesus in bringing about renewal of all things. Can't think of anything greater. I look at a world that is broken and deeply sad. Lost. And to think that Jesus hit the reset button a thousand years ago as he hung on the cross for the sins of humanity and he defeated death Easter Sunday and he, he established the kingdom, declared the kingdom is here. The kingdom of God here. It's subversive. He likened it. He compared it to, to yeast that gets worked into a lump of dough. And, and you, don't, you don't see it, but boy, give it time. And it begins to influence that lump of dough, doesn't it? Jesus started that. And you and I continue that. You and I, as his bride, are partnering with him in the renewal of all things, partnering with him in expanding the kingdom so that like yeast influences everything. I are part of a countercultural movement, if you will. We, we, we are, we're, that, we're that wedding. We're that wedding with a new heaven and a new earth and a, and a new couple and a new direction. And where will it be? What's the potential? Where's it going? Oh, it's going to be great. You and I are part of that, friends. That's why. Well, vital that we die to ourselves so that we can begin to live into that. So friendship with Jesus is sweet. You can come play if you want. So friendship with Jesus is sweet. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? Heck, let's go back even further. Having free fire insurance and a free ticket to heaven, like, that's really great. Agree with me? I mean, I'll take that. And if that's all that there is, then I'm glad to have that. But enjoying friendship with him, really great. Jesus says, yeah, but why don't we share the inheritance together? Okay, that's phenomenal. And then Jesus says, yeah, but let's, let's do more than that. How about we share the kingdom together? And then, and then in this way, then we can together leave an inheritance. So as his bride, we're not just sharing the inheritance, we're leaving an inheritance. Does that make sense? Right? We've been fashioned to reign with him. And this is why it's so essential to die to ourselves. Because here's the thing. Heaven sees leadership differently than earth does. Do you agree with that? In heaven's economy, the, the last are the first. In heaven's world, the weakest are the strongest. It, it, that's how heaven operates. Heaven operates completely uh, different than the way our world operates. So 
So we hear a message like this and we think, reign with Christ? Cool. When do I get to stomp people on the head? You know, when do I get to, yeah, this is great. Mm. The kingdom that you and I are a part of, that we've been called into, it changes things from the bottom up. It changes things by dying for them, literally sometimes. It's quite a life we've been called to. But I hope this morning that you've seen that, that you now see like where Jesus is wanting to take us. It's awesome. Hmm. So I pray that if anything, this just, like I said, salted the oats for you and made you thirsty for more in your walk with Christ. That what you have right now in Christ is good. And, and I certainly celebrate that as your pastor, where you are in Christ at this moment. Hallelujah. But please know, there's a lot. Sometimes, don't you feel like, as a Christian, like we've just, like it's like going to Disney World, you know, and you just, you got, you got your ticket. So I, I went through the turnstile and now I'm in. And, and I wonder how many people just stay right there and say, boy, what a cool place. Look around. What a great, what a great. And, and when the kingdom of God is meant for you to explore, like, like go check it all out. Be a part of it all. And as the bride of Christ, we can take risks. And we can be generous and we can give and we can serve and we can speak up and speak out and we can write because we we carry this um, call on our lives so hope this morning that you've seen that and been inspired to it let's pray father thank you um, for loving us so much that uh, that you've got more for us than we ever imagined you did actually i thank you lord Lord, I pray for each one of us this morning that um, we would um, uh, become dissatisfied with where we are currently in our relationship with you, and we would begin to be antsy, and that we would want more, that we would want to press into you for more, that, Lord Jesus, we would, um, we would choose to uh, let go that are comfortable to us at this moment, and we would literally press into you for more. Jesus, I want to have and I want to be everything that you died for me to be. And Lord, I want that for our church. I want that for each one of us. So Lord Jesus, we invite you to do that work today. morning, uh, maybe with your heads bowed and your eyes closed here as, as we're praying in this, in this moment, it might have occurred to you today that you um, don't know God 
or that you barely know him. Maybe you were thinking that because you prayed that prayer all those years ago that, well, you're good, you're set. And this morning you discovered that God has been dreaming bigger dreams for you. Would you be willing to um, leave where you are in your relationship with him and commit to going deeper? Or this morning, maybe you're not in relationship with Jesus at all. And you're, you're realizing, wow, I thought this was just about religion. And maybe this morning you've discovered for the first time, no, You've heard the heart of God, that he loves you, and he wants a relationship with you, and he wants to grow with you, and he has big dreams and plans and goals, and, and wow, you're saying, I want to be a part of that. This morning, um, you can be. You can begin today. It starts simply by acknowledging that you have sinned against God, and asking Jesus to forgive you, he promises that he will. And then you can receive his gift of salvation and forgiveness. And then we begin. <laughs> and then we begin. Would you do that in this quiet moment? You don't have to have any fancy prayer. Just make that decision. Thank you. So this morning, as we sing this song in closing, our altar is open. I invite you to come and receive prayer if you'd like to be prayed for, or just, just to pray on your own. Uh, I know in the first service, a number of folks came forward just to say, Lord, I want more. I mean, I'm thankful for what you've given, but I want more. And so if that's your decision, you want to do that today, you're welcome to do that. Let's come and just make that public decision, you know. God, I want more. Well, that about wraps it up for today. We hope that today's message was a blessing to you. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org.